worthy name we ask these things. Amen and amen. I simply want to look at the subject of adoption under three headings this morning. I want us to think about adoption explained and then moving on to adoption experienced and then finally adoption enjoyed. And trust the Lord to give us help as we do that this morning. First of all, adoption explained, the meaning of the work of adoption. Well, the word adoption appears in the Bible five times. Three times in the book of Romans, once in the book of Galatians, and once in the book of Ephesians. However, the doctrine itself is seen throughout Scripture. Essentially, the Lord taking a people onto himself and being a father unto them. Now, as we want to establish the word and the work, I want us to look at some of those passages that mention the word adoption. So turn with me, first of all, to Ephesians uh, chapter number one. Ephesians chapter one. Let's read from verse number three. Part of the greeting of Paul to the church at Ephesus. And we read from verse number three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who have blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children. By Jesus Christ to himself. According to the good pleasure of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace. Wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. In whom? We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. The apostle is describing the saints who are in Jesus Christ. You will notice in verse three, they are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. You'll notice in verse four, the emphasis is that they are chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Before the Lord said, let there be light, we were chosen in Christ onto the blessings that are provided in the Savior. In verse number five, specifically, our mind is taken to this fact. We've been predestinated onto adoption. And because of all the riches of the redemption of Christ, we are onto the praise of his glory. The work of redemption is onto the glory of the Lord. And you will notice in verse seven, That we have the very word and work of redemption emphasized for us. The forgiveness of sins through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will find that where adoption is found in scripture, not far away, just before or just after, the work of redemption is also in view. Because the two are inextricably linked. Upon conversion, having exercised faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and repentance from sin... The individual is justified by God, and we focused on that truth already this morning. But the individual is also at that time adopted into the family of God. One Bible commentator put it like this, justification pronounces us righteous in the sight of God. Adoption makes us his children. Justification makes us citizens of God's kingdom. Adoption makes us members of his family. In justification, God acts as our judge. In adoption, we see God as our father. They are two distinct works, and yet they cannot be experienced without the other. The word adoption, in fact, in the Greek is made up of two words. The first word means son, and the other means to place. And therefore, the literal interpretation of adoption is to be placed as a son. Now, let's remember the context in which the scripture was written. Under Roman law, 
and under the Roman regulations of that time. What did the word adoption mean to the Roman citizen? Well, the word adoption in Roman law meant the person had a right to be the legitimate son in his new family and had completely lost all the rights in his old family. In the eyes of the law, he was a new person. So new that even all the debts and obligations connected with his previous family were abolished as if they never had existed. And therefore, you can see the depth of that word adoption and what it meant when they heard that word at that time there in Ephesus under Roman law. It meant that they were new. It meant that all the debt, all the baggage of their old life, who they used to be, was forgiven. It was dealt with at the cross through the work of redemption. But in Galatians chapter 4, we go a little further in our understanding of what adoption means. Because in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, we read that not only do we become a child of God, but the Holy Spirit is given to us. Let's read from verse number 4. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Once again, redemption is mentioned in relation to adoption. The fullness of time, of course, refers to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into this world, that time ordained by God for his Son to come into this world through virgin birth. And the work of Christ Uh, not only has dealt with the guilt of our sin, as mentioned in Ephesians chapter 1, but it also deals with the bondage that the sinner is under, and that is emphasized here in Galatians chapter 4. You see, the sinner is under the bondage of sin. They're under the bondage even of the law of God. Under the law of God, which we are born under, we're under the obligation of the law, the curse of the law, the condemnation of the law. But redemption of the sinner through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who perfectly fulfilled the law of God, delivers us from the bondage of the law, being under the law. And praise God, we are now under grace. And when we are saved, verse 6 says that we become the sons of God. And the Spirit of God is sent forth into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This is one of the great evidences of conversion. We cry out to God. Calvin said, I consider that this word, this word crying in verse number six, is used to express great boldness as we come to God. Uncertainty does not let us speak calmly, but keeps our mouth half shut, so that the half-broken words can hardly escape from a stammering tongue. Crying, on the contrary, is a sign of certainty and unwavering confidence. And God places within us, by his Holy Spirit, the confidence to call upon God as our Heavenly Father. Notice it says in verse 7, Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. And in this particular instance, talking about no longer a servant, but now a son, the idea of freedom is emphasized here also. Now, the son... The child of God is not free to do as he wishes, but rather he is free from the dominion of sin. 
from the tyranny of Satan, from the curse of the law. He is free to worship God. He is free now to obey God, having the spirit of God to help him. He is free to be in the work of God, to be in the service of the Lord, to be in obedience to the Lord. So we see that there is a freedom that comes along with our adoption. We see that the Holy Spirit is given. And one more verse I want us to turn to is in John's Gospel, uh, chapter 1, just as we can continue to emphasize the definition of the word adoption. And it says in verse 12, But as many as received him, to them give he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. We see the qualification of faith stated here. And of course, it's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As many as received him or to them that believe in his name. Galatians 3.26, I'll just quote it for you, details it. For ye are the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. And therefore, that is how we come to that wonderful standing of being a child of God, of being found in Christ. We also see the power of God in bestowing the privilege of adoption upon the believer. Because it says there in verse number 12, to them give he power to become the sons of God. The word for power in the Greek, it signifies dignity and prerogative. He dignified them. God has lifted us up from the gutter of sin, from the depths of depravity, from the wickedness that we were born in. And he has given us the dignity of being known as the sons of God, belonging to the family of God. There is, of course, a vast difference between the Son of God and we as the sons of God. We read, of course, about the eternality of Christ in the first five verses of John's Gospel. He is the eternal Son of the eternal God. He has no beginning, he has no end. We, on the other hand, are created by God, have fallen in sin, have been regenerated and now are made the sons of God, enjoying all the rights and privileges that that position bestows upon us. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, made three observations about adoption. He said, adoption takes in all nations. Acts 10.35, in every nation he that feareth God and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. Not only that, but adoption takes in both sexes, females as well as males. I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 18. And adoption is an act of pure grace. It's the grace of God. It's already been mentioned this morning. There's not one of us we're deserving of being in this position. Not one of us deserving or worthy or meritorious of the of the blessings of God, of the privileges of the redeemed. But God and grace chose us. And God and grace worked in our hearts that which man could never work. And he made us willing to turn, to call, to repent, to receive, and to be therefore accepted into the family of God. Just a couple of other things I want to mention before we move on. We cannot forfeit or lose our adoption any more than we can forfeit or lose our justification. You know why? Because it's the work of God. It's God's work. It is a perfect work. It is an eternal work. I love those verses in John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. 
My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. As it is an act of God, no man or devil can undo this work. And these teachings are summarized for us in the Catechism. Shorter Catechism says adoption is an act of God's free grace, whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. The larger catechism gives a fuller answer. Adoption is an act of the free grace of God in and for his only son, Jesus Christ, whereby all those that are justified are received into the number of his children, have his name put upon them. The spirit of his son given to them are under the fatherly care and dispensations, admitted to all the liberties and privileges of the sons of God, made heirs of all the promises and fellow heirs with Christ in glory. And therefore, praise God that those of us who are saved are also justified, adopted into the family of God. And therefore, I want us to move on this morning to consider adoption experience. And that's the blessings of the work. The blessings of adoption. What blessings do we have this morning? What blessings can we enjoy this morning? Well, the first thing that we want to consider is this, that the Lord has put his name upon us. We have a new name. Our identity before salvation was that we were a child of Satan. Now, the Bible tells us and makes it very clear that it's his authority we were under. What we now are the children of God, Galatians 3.26. Ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. That's our identity this morning. We are saved. We belong to a heavenly Father. There's a lovely verse in Revelation chapter 3, verse 12, whenever uh, they're writing to the church there at Philippi. And it says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 12, Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall go out no more, or he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. My new name. In the city of Philadelphia, those who were being honoured in the city often had their names inscribed on the pillars of the temple. So as people came to worship, they were able to see the names of the dignitaries of that city and might remember them. And here the Lord is speaking and he says he will make us pillars within the temple of the Lord. He will give us stability in the temple of God. And it says he will write upon us a new name. Something of Christ will be seen in us as others look upon us and as we live before the world. Our names are inscribed in his hands. His name is inscribed on our lives. Do people see it? And the testimony that we have, do people know that we belong to God? That we are a member of the family of God, that we serve, love, and belong to a heavenly Father. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8, because there we see the second blessing. 
And it is the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within. Romans chapter 8, verse number 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. This is a wonderful, wonderful truth that God gives his spirit to his people. Now, there are several things that are revealed here immediately. That the Spirit of God leads his people. We see that in verse 14. That the Spirit of God delivers from the bondage of fear and gives us peace. And we're going to see that in a few moments. And also, it gives us assurance that we are the children of God. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ, before he left this earth, taught about the Spirit that would come. And about the work that the Spirit would do. And if you turn to John's Gospel, chapter 14, we read something of what the Spirit uh, is, of his work that he has identified here in John's Gospel, chapter 14, in verse number 25. These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, He shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And it tells us here that the Holy Spirit would teach all things and bring all things to our remembrance. The words of Christ, the words of the Lord are being brought to us and will be brought to us by the Spirit of God. They will be applied to our heart. They will lead us. And it's interesting to note that after the teaching of the Spirit is mentioned, the next verse starts with the word peace. It's a salutation of peace. Peace I leave with you. We're living in a world today that's void of peace. But it is our right as the children of God to have no experience and enjoy the peace of God. Now, this world speaks a lot about peace, but it's speaking about peace between sinful man and sinful man, sinful nation and sinful nation. Peace in the eyes of this world is really when everything's going the way they think it should be going. But the peace that is spoken of here is spiritual peace. It is a peace that comes regardless of circumstance because it is the peace of God. It's described in Philippians 4 as the peace of God that passeth all understanding. It's a precious peace. It's a peace that God himself gives even in the midst of the turmoil, the darkness and the troubles of this world. We can know this peace as we realize that God is still in the throne. As we realize that all that happens to us is in his sovereign purpose and plan. That we are his. He is in control. We need not fear. And where do we get such assurance? We get it as we read the word of God and as the Holy Spirit applies that word to our hearts. As we read what God has revealed in his word and we receive it by faith as truth and act upon it. 
That is how we have peace in this world. I wonder, do you have peace today? I'm not asking you, are your circumstances easy? I'm not asking, is everything going the way you would desire it to be going? But I'm asking, do you know today the peace of God? Are you able to say, I'm resting fully upon my God? Turn to John chapter 15, verse number 26. A further thing that happens here, when the Comforter has come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me, and ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. And here we see the Lord once again sending his Spirit to minister to the hearts of the believers. And what follows after the work of the Spirit? Ye shall also Bear witness of me. You should be witnesses. And you know, as the Spirit of God shares with us the person and the work of Christ, as we learn about the wisdom of God from the Word of God, the Holy Spirit will also equip us for the task of witnessing those truths and giving us power to witness and tell others about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're in the Word, the Spirit of God will minister to your heart, bring a peace. If you're in the Word, the Spirit of God will minister to your heart, and He will give you a burden to share the truth. The Spirit of God leads us. He never leads us contrary to Scripture. He never leads us contrary to Scripture. But God's guidance, the Spirit's guidance, is always agreeable to the Word of God. Thy Word is truth. John 17, 17. And in John 16, 13, the Spirit guides us into all truth. Now, you and I have heard people who have made choices in life and they say, oh, the Lord told me to do this. The Lord told me to do this. And it's something that you know is contrary to Scripture. The Lord has told me to do this. What are they doing? Well, they may believe a church where the Word of God is being faithfully preached. And they go somewhere where an emphasis is more on about an emotional feeling or about how casual you can be. Or teaching that is completely contradictory to the word of God. The Lord told me to do this. What's happening there? Well that person is taking the name of the Lord and blasphemously using it. The Lord hasn't told them to leave a place where truth is being taught. And go to somewhere where error is being taught. That's blasphemy. And we need to be careful that we are being guided by the Spirit of God. And the Lord can and the Lord does and praise God he will guide his people who are seeking his will and his way. But we need to be careful that we don't just go our own way and try to put the stamp the Lord told me so. The Spirit guides us into all truth. Spirit-led people are a people of unity. Spirit-led people are a people who bring blessing into the work of God. I remember in Bible college, one of our lecturers telling us, spiritual people do not cause problems in a church. And therefore, we need to pray that we'll be in step with the Spirit. The work of the Spirit imparted to us as God's children result in a changed life. Because as we walk with the Lord and we are guided by the Spirit, we are changed. And we become like the one whom we love, the one whom we worship, the one whom we obey. There's a Christ-likeness, there's a growth, there's a maturity to our walk through the witness and the ministry of the Spirit of the Lord. 
Of course, there is the ministry of the Spirit in the place of prayer in Romans chapter 8. And I mention that in passing because we're going to think about prayer in just a few moments. A reminder that we can do nothing of our own strength and ability. We cannot pray, we cannot serve, we cannot grow, we cannot shine, we cannot witness, we cannot overcome sin. But we must do so in the power of the Spirit of the Lord. Thank God for the indwelling Spirit. We're not left to try our best. But we are left rather to depend upon the work that Christ has done. The power of the Spirit to live in obedience to the word of God. Thirdly, the blessings of adoption. We have a loving father. In 1 John 3, 1 it says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. And very precious words in Psalm 103, verse 13. Like as a father pitieth his children. So the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he remembereth our freedom. He, re- he knoweth our freedom. He remembereth that we are dust. And then one other verse I want to quote before we think about the loving father. Matthew six thirty-two. Your heavenly father knoweth. You have need of all these things. I think these are precious, precious words. The manner of love that has bestowed upon us. The pity or the compassion of the Lord upon his children. And the knowledge of God. Not just knowledge about us that he knows what our need is. But of course with that knowledge comes the provision of the need. It is always met. What does a loving father in this scene of time do for his children? Well, the first thing a good father does is protect sin. And praise the Lord for the protecting hand of our Heavenly Father. Psalm 121, Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is thy keeper, the Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. The Lord shall preserve thy going out and thy coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. My Heavenly Father watches over me. Always. At all times and in all places. Perhaps it will not be until eternity that we'll see truly the protection that God gave to us. The mercies seen and unseen. Not only does a loving father protect, but a loving father provides. A true father will provide for his children. He will give them what they need. Not always what they want, but certainly what they need. And the Lord took up this theme whenever he spoke to the people there in Luke eleven thirteen. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? And Matthew's Gospel tells us how much more shall your heavenly Father give good gifts to them that ask him. You know, we have one who has provided for every need through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a heavenly father who is a storehouse full of blessing. And sometimes we sit in spiritual poverty. It's not because there's a lack on God's part. But we have to be honest, you have not because you ask not. We've one who is ready and willing to give. He's a God that giveth and giveth and giveth again. In fact, everything that the child of God needs to grow in grace and in knowledge, to grow more like their saviour, to grow in the family likeness, is provided by 
our Heavenly Father. Your provision is met today. You have one who will give what you need. What else does a father do? Well, he guides. He gives instruction to his children. He teaches them what is right and what is wrong. I love these words in Psalm 32, 8. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. But then we must remember that a, a true father, a good father, will discipline and chastise his child. We know from the teaching of scripture and probably from practical experience that to let sin go unpunished does not benefit a child. It does not benefit a child. They do not learn how serious it is. They do not learn how dangerous it is. They do not learn how grieving it is if it goes unpunished. And the word of God teaches that those whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth. Proverbs 3, 11, my son, despise not the chastening of the Lord. Neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father, the son in whom he delighteth. Hebrews 12 and 11, now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. I wonder, have you ever, in your Christian life, thanked the Lord for his chastening hand? Have you ever thanked the Lord for those times he's disciplined you? Oh, it was painful at the time. It wasn't pleasant, but it corrected you. It brought you back onto the path of righteousness. No longer in bypath meadow. No longer going your own way. No longer going contrary to God's word. No longer trying to destroy your testimony. God has been so merciful. What a blessing it is when he does discipline us. When we are Grieved over sin. When he puts his finger upon something in our life that is displeasing to him. And that's a great blessing. A loving father will do that. That we might be brought to the right place. Not only do we have those things, but we also have the promises that are given in the word of God. As the children, we have the right to claim every promise in this book that God has given to us. We have the right to come before him because God has spoken and we can take him at his word. What is prayer but the taking of the word of God and bringing it before the Lord and saying, Lord, fulfill this, thy word. He has given specific promises for the children of the Lord. And whenever we think of Bible passages about those wonderful, precious promises that God has given, we must remember that they are for the children of God. Often marvel that Psalm 23, and it's the best well-known psalm. And it doesn't matter if a person has never darkened the door of a church hardly in their lifetime. They want it either sung 
or read at the funeral service. Because there's many great promises and it brings great comfort. But they often neglect to consider the implication of verse number one. Because it says the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And it's only then that he can go down the rest of the psalm and claim every single promise. Because he is one who belongs to the shepherd. Those promises are not for the unsaved in their sin. Whenever someone goes through the valley of the shadow of death, they ought to fear if they're not saved. They'll tremble in their sin. They'll be terrified as they go out into God's eternity. And therefore, we are privileged today to say every promise in the book is mine. Every one. And we can claim them because God has given to his people, to his children, the promises of the word of God. Ephesians chapter 2. Membership of the family of God. Ephesians chapter 2. Membership of the family of God. And in Ephesians 2 verse 19. We read these words. Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners. But fellow citizens with the saints. And of the household of God. And therefore we have to consider what that means for us. In our standing. As a member of the family of God. Well we have a heavenly father. And that's emphasized again and again and again in scripture. But we also have an elder brother. And this is revealed to us. In Romans chapter 8, 29. And also in Hebrews chapter 2. Verse number 11. And we'll turn to that one. Hebrews chapter 2. Verse number 11. I think these are amazing words. They're very humbling words. We'll read from verse 9 of Hebrews chapter 2 for context. But we see Jesus. He was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Crowned with glory and honour. That he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things. In bringing many sons unto glory. To make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth. And they who are sanctified are all of one. For the which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. Those words, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Such is the work of God in our salvation, in our justification. The Christ is not ashamed to call us his brethren. And that should humble us. Have there been times whenever we've been challenged by our faith, what we believe, we've been ashamed? Have there been times we haven't spoken the full truth because of fear of what others might think about us? He is not ashamed to call us brethren. May God give us a heart that is never ashamed to own him or stand up for him 
or to do what is right. Not only do we have a heavenly father and an elder brother, but we are fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. We are brothers and sisters in the family of God, those who are the true church. And by that I mean in the right sense of the term, the called out, those who are called out of sin and into Christ, the true church of Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a reminder to us this morning that the church is precious to the Lord. And we ought to be careful how we speak about the church of Jesus Christ, how we speak about brothers and sisters in the church of Jesus Christ. We need to be careful how we treat the church of Jesus Christ and how we even view the church of Jesus Christ. Because the church is made up of those for whom Christ has died, those whom he has set his love upon, those who are washed in the blood, those who are heirs according to the promise Sometimes we can look around and maybe in heart with pride elevate ourselves up and think that we're something in the church. And others are less. But we are loved with an everlasting love. An eternal love. Someone once said the ground is level at the cross. God forbid that I should glory. Save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The church is precious to the Lord and it ought to be precious to us. And whenever you read through the epistles, one thing that is emphasized again and again and again is love for the brethren. Why? Because that's something we have a, something we have a challenge with. We're not all the same. We're not all the same personality. We don't all the same background. But we're commanded to love. And if the command is given, there's grace to obey the command. There's power to obey the command. Now it goes against the flesh. It goes against the natural. But God has given us this command that we are to love the family in which we have been placed. May God give us grace to do it. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 18. It tells us that we have in verse 18. For through him we have access by one spirit unto the father. Another privilege as a child of God is adopted into his family. We have access to God and this is the privilege of prayer. And we come to God as a child comes to their father. We come to our heavenly father. We come needy, believing that he will provide. We come asking. We come praising. We come worshipping. But we have access to him at any place, at any time. But we have to be honest. Before God, in this church today, how neglected prayer is. We have access to God, but let's be honest, it's very neglected. Time spent with God is precious. But if we're honest, it's not always experienced. How powerful prayer is. Prayer changes us. There in the place where we are before the Heavenly Father. We're changed in the place of prayer. Our will is brought into agreement with his. Peace is given in the midst of trial. He directs, he leads, he guides, he comforts. And yet is it not true that there's such a battle, such a barrier at times to sitting down to pray?
devil knows that that's the place of power. That's the place where we get the victory. That's the place where a great deal of the work is done in our hearts, in our churches. Yet it seems to be you can hardly get people to pray. We ought to realize and be reminded once again what a privileged prayer is. Look what it says. For through him we have access by one spirit unto the Father. Dear child, you have the ear of your heavenly Father. And how much sorrow I believe we would be spared. How much regret we would be spared. If we would realize the privilege we have. And come before the Lord as he has commanded us to do so. My final thought with the privileges and the blessings of being adopted. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and we're almost through. Verse 17. Romans 8, 17. And if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. It is a perfect work. That has been done for our salvation. But we have not experienced the full realization of our redemption. But praise God we will one day. Whenever we leave this scene of time. Whenever the former things are passed away. When we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. When there shall be no more sin or sorrow. Suffering, sickness, pain, or death. Whenever we, for the first time, love the Lord with an unsinning heart. When we worship him without any hindrance. It'll be a joy we've never experienced. It'll be a blessing that cannot be realized this side of eternity. Thomas Watson put it this way. Adoption ends in coronation. He hath begun the work in you. Praise God, he will complete it. He will complete it. We will be promoted to glory. And there will never sin anymore. Finally, and briefly, adoption enjoyed. Enjoying being a child of God. I trust that your heart has been filled this morning with thanksgiving for what God has provided for you. For what you have this morning, for who you are. You are blessed. You're chosen. You're loved. You're provided for. You've one who loves you with an eternal love. And we've only scratched the surface. We can take every single one of these thoughts and speak on them individually. However, I do want to give a word of caution at the end of this message. Be careful, child of God, that you do not forget or neglect your rights and privileges that you now possess. Don't forget them. Don't neglect them. I think of the sweet psalmist of Israel, 
A man after God's own heart, who for it is believed at least a year, lived his life without joy, without usefulness, wasting the opportunity to partake of the blessings and turned into someone who was critical at others and quick to point the finger. The Lord sent a servant before David and put the scenario to him. And David said, that man has sinned, that man's wrong, he must be punished. And the servant said, thou art the man. What happened? Why was he not enjoying the blessings of his salvation? Why was he not enjoying being a son of God? What had turned him into one who was so critical of others? And so bitter in his life. Have you ever met a Christian that's not enjoying their salvation? Have you ever met a child of God? Who is out of step with her Savior. Everything's wrong. Everyone's wrong. The preacher's at fault. The elders are at fault. The person living two doors down from me is at fault. The person who claims to be a Christian is at fault. And all you ever hear is complaint. They come and go from God's house. Oh, there's no blessing there. There's never a word of encouragement from their lips. There's no genuine peace or joy upon their face. Yes, they're still the children of God, but they are walking in coldness of heart. Why? Because they're in rebellion against the will and the word of God. There is something in their life that they're holding to that is displeasing to the Lord. Some sin. Some attitude, some hurt, whatever it is. And the sad thing is they often don't even realize. They do not realize that they are not in fellowship with God. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Is it possible you're out of fellowship with the Lord? What did David do? Well, in Psalm 51, he prayed on to the Lord. And it's interesting to note what he prayed. And just turn with me as we close to Psalm 51. In verse number 10, he said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He prayed for cleansing. Cleansing. Cleansing from his sin. Cleansing from his attitude. Cleansing from his behavior. Verse number 11. Cast me not away from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. He's praying that the Spirit would have control. Because he was living in his own steam. He was going his own way and in his own wisdom. And then he says in verse number 12. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. And uphold me with thy free spirit. Verse number 13. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways and sinners shall be converted unto thee. He's asking that the Lord would use his life in service. 
And verse 15, O Lord, open thou my lips and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. Here he prays for a heart and a mouth of praise. I'm afraid you can stand in God's house and you can sing the words of the hymns. But if the other things aren't in place, it's empty. There's no joy in it. You're going through the motion. I want to ask you the question, do you have the joy of salvation in your heart today? Are you joyful in the Lord? I'm not asking, is everything perfect? I'm not asking, is everything easy? I'm not asking you, have you everything that you want? But I'm asking you this, are you glad you're saved today? Are you rejoicing in Christ today? Is your heart thrilled this morning as you've heard about your justification? By what God has provided as your heavenly father. Are you excited for more? Or friend do you need to get to the place where David was. When he prayed Lord create me a clean heart. John Newton as you know. Wrote that famous hymn Amazing Grace. Only a child when his mother died. Seven years old. Didn't really know the love. Of a father. Became a sailor, went out to sea at 11 years old. He grew up, became the captain of the slave ship, as you know. Committed some of the most horrendous crimes and treated people inhumanely. But at the age of 23, on March the 10th, 1748, he was in danger of sinking off the coast of Newfoundland. And he cried to the Lord for mercy and he never, and he found it. He never forgot how amazing it was that God had received him because he was a wicked, wicked man. And in order to remember what the Lord had done for him, he got a plaque made across the mantle of his fireplace. Deuteronomy 15, 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that the Lord, thy God, redeemed thee. And he said, I need to keep fresh in my mind what I once was and what I am now, who I am now in Christ Jesus. May we never lose the wonder what the Lord has done for us. May we never get over the blessings and the privileges we have today as the sons of God. May we ever stand in awe of the mercy of God as we lay our all upon the altar and surrender our all to the one who gave his all for us. A Polish prince many years ago had a custom of carrying a picture of his father the king in his pocket on a daily basis he took out that picture and he viewed it and he said let me do nothing unbecoming of so excellent a father friend we need to open this bible every day and see something of the beauty of Christ the mercy of God the love of God And that needs to be our prayer. Let me do nothing unbecoming. Oh, so excellent the Father. May God make us faithful sons.